Welcome to the ThinkCast from ThinkCon 2012. I'm Sarah Castor-Perry and in this episode I'm talking to Dr Lewis Dartnell, an astrobiologist from University College London. Lewis, what are you, I see your big, big slide ready up on the stage, astrobiology, the search for alien life. So I'm assuming that's pretty much what you're going to be talking about today. Yeah, it, it, it pretty much is going to do what it says on the tin, I hope. Um, and it's it's linked to the research I do at UCL into astrobiology and looking into the possibility of there being life beyond Earth, looking into, into the science of extraterrestrials or aliens. Um, but what I'm going to try and do in the talk is take a very broad overview, so cover a bit about what life is in the first place and, and how it works and some of the most extreme life forms we found on Earth, and then take a tour of some of the places we think might feasibly have life on them beyond the Earth, so maybe Mars and Europa. And then something we've been discovering just just the last 10 or 15 years are lots of worlds orbiting other suns, the, the kind of extrasolar planets. Um, so we'll look at some of those and see what possibilities they might have for life as well. So if we're looking at kind of models for potential life elsewhere, we're kind of thinking about extremophiles, that kind of thing. So it's it's not going to be, I mean, I see that you've got alien in italics, so it's kind of like, it's like alien, the <laughs> film. And there's this whole thing about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Is that kind of a bit of a misnomer because we're most likely to find things a bit more like extremophile bacteria rather than fully formed people having conversations and making spaceships yeah. and kind of things. Well, actually, although they're obviously related, astrobiology and looking for bacteria or simple life forms in our solar system and SETI, looking out for intelligent life, they're obviously related, but you kind of go about them in a very, very different way. And through SETI, you have to assume that that life will be self-reporting. You don't have to go out and hunt for it actively. It'll let you know that it's there. So you just have to listen passively from Earth um, and hopefully, you know, basically overhear one of their phone conversations or, or tweets or something. Whereas with astrobiology, um, I say it's very, very much more active. You have to design experiments and launch them on a probe with a rocket to go to Mars to, to, to do their stuff on, on the surface of the planet and, and send you back the data. And as you're saying, we're trying to compare what we know about extremophiles on Earth to these conditions and other places. And in his talk, Lewis described some of these extremophiles that we find on Earth. And I want to take you first uh, to this place here. This is Yellowstone Park in North America. It's a very volcanically active region of the planet. And we find these lakes, we find these ponds of water on the surface in Yellowstone Park, which are very, very hot. They're boiling hot in the middle with all the volcanic activity underneath. And they're also very, very acidic with all the sulfurous volcanic gases bubbling up through them. And just for scale, there's a path running alongside this lake with some people walking on it. Now, if you've been lucky enough to slip off that path and splash into this lake, as someone does every year, although never the same person twice, <laughs> because you die, you die exceedingly quickly and in excruciating pain as you are boiled to death in a great big volcanic lake of boiling hot acid. And if they don't fish your corpse, out of this lake quickly enough, the skin and the flesh and the muscles are dissolved off your bones, you're a floating skeleton. Because that's how hot and acidic it is. So you do not want to go swimming in this kind of environment. Go swimming in the, in the sea instead on your holidays, because the chemistry of the ocean is much closer to the chemistry of our cells. But the colours of this lake, the greens and the yellows and the oranges and the reds, those are the colours of life. They're the colours of heat loving organisms, and the colours of acid-loving organisms, thermophiles and acidophiles, that have adapted and evolved to call this hellhole their home. They thrive in this incredibly hot, boiling acid under these punishing conditions. 
If we look to the opposite extreme, let's imagine we've left Yellowstone Park and we're now bobbing around in a rubber dinghy just off the coast of the South Pole, in the South Polar Sea. Um, there's a cold wind blowing and we're trying to row our way up the side of one of these vast icebergs that we see floating there. And we scrape off some of the ice and put it under a microscope just to see what we can see. And this is what we would see down a microscope. So this is a, a solid iceberg. So a lot of what we can see are vast chunks of ice crystal. But because that was seawater that froze, the water that gets left behind gets saltier and saltier and saltier until eventually it doesn't freeze. So riddling their way throughout this entire iceberg are thousands of pockets and channels and tunnels and pores full of very, very salty liquid water, so with briny veins. And if you were to zoom even closer into one of these briny veins, you find it absolutely jam-packed, full of bacteria, crammed in there, head to toe, like some kind of microscopic traffic jam, alive and well, and doing all those things we saw in that video, inside the dark depths of a solid iceberg at minus 20 degrees Celsius. So even colder than the deep freeze in your kitchen at home, something that was invented and designed to stop stuff growing, you find life thriving under those punishingly cold conditions. But the really exciting thing about these extreme fires and the possibilities of, of, of finding life in planets beyond our Earth is when you consider all these extreme fires together and the different ranges of conditions they can survive under. And you can plot a kind of three-dimensional graph like we've got here. So looking first at pH from very, very acidic conditions inside those volcanic lakes that we saw up to very alkaline conditions. And then temperature from minus 20 inside our solid icebergs all the way up to plus 120 degrees Celsius. There is life on Earth we discovered swarming in water beyond the normal boiling point. And then salinity from pure distilled water all the way up to saturated salt solutions. So a place like the Dead Sea, which turns out actually it's not been all that dead at all. And then you plot the different ranges of conditions that extreme files have already discovered can survive under, and you build up this green boot-shaped cloud. This is the survival, survival envelope of all life on Earth. At any point inside this green cloud, there's something we've already discovered surviving a particular combination of horrible and nasty conditions. An exciting thing for astrobiology is that the survival envelope of terrestrial life overlaps with the conditions we know or we think exist in extraterrestrial habitats. So talking about very hot acidic water like in the cloud decks of Venus, or cold, silty water deep beneath the face of Mars, or cold, alkaline water um, deep inside the interior of Jupiter's moon Europa. There is stuff on Earth we have already discovered that could survive environmental conditions in these alien worlds, in these dark alien oceans. So isn't that crazy at all to talk about the possibility of extraterrestrial life? We're familiar with this kind of life already here on Earth. So what kind of, um, if we were to look on Mars and Europa and places like that, what, what are the features of those places that make us think mm, life could exist there? Well, first and foremost, um, we want to find liquid water. That All life on Earth is water-based, and, and pretty much every moist niche on our planet is teeming with life. Um, but aside from the water, you, you, need, you need the building blocks for life. You need the stuff that cells are made out of, and, and, and terrestrial life, that's organic molecules, that's carbon chemistry. So at the moment, we're following the water and following the carbon. We're looking for where organic molecules are. And that's something that the Mars rover 
that's already en route to Mars is it's traveling through space at the moment. And Curiosity is a NASA rover will be landing uh, this coming August. And there's a follow-on mission after that that the Europeans, um, ESA, are putting together called ExoMars that will not only be looking for organic molecules, but the signatures of life itself, of so-called biosignatures. So it'll be the first time we've tried that since the 70s, and it's going to be a very, very exciting mission. And what are these biosignatures then? Well, there's, there's different different features of life that betrays itself against the, the kind of background of, of geology or of dead chemistry. So you'd be looking for organics which are so complex they wouldn't have been created unless life had synthesized them and you don't get them through prebiotic chemistry. So something like a DNA molecule is, is a smoking gun for life, but difficult to detect and doesn't stick around in the environment that long it breaks down. So one of the instruments I'm working on for ExoMars is called Raman uh, spectroscopy and you basically use a laser as a very sensitive way of detecting different organic molecules, but also the kind of microenvironment that life might be living in. So you can, you can tell what the mineralogy of the rocks are. And using this, we should be able to detect things like chlorophyll or carotenoids of tiny colonies of bacteria hiding under, under the surface of rocks where they'd have to be to be protected from the Martian environment. And if we're looking further afield, I mean, obviously, it still takes a very long time to get something like a rover to Mars. But if we're looking a lot further afield to these kind of Earth-like planets around other suns, obviously, we're never going to be able to send anything there. So how do we look for life that far away? We can do it... You can do it indirectly, you can do it without really having to leave your own, your own armchair, at least if you've got an armchair near to a, a, a telescope. Um, because once we detect, we haven't detected a, a truly Earth-like planet orbiting another sun yet. But if we've understood how planets form, um, we expect to find one the next year or two. And, and hopefully with a Kepler Space Telescope, which has already been launched, has already found thousands of planets. But the next step after that, once you've found a habitable Earth-like world, is to show that it's not just habitable, but it's actually inhabited and the kind of biosignatures we'd be looking for here would be something like a, an oxygen-rich atmosphere. Because the only way we know how to explain that is because life has pumped the oxygen up in, in just the same way it has on, on Earth here. So that would be, um, that would be the, the kind of global biosignature we'd be looking for on another Earth-like planet. How long do you think it will be until we do start to find incontrovertible evidence, either in our own solar system or elsewhere, that there is life out there? Well, I, I genuinely believe that if there is life there, if there's life on Mars um, or on another nearby Earth-like planet, we will have had that evidence, we'll have that evidence in our hand within my lifetime. And obviously I won't be kind of betting my career on that otherwise. And actually what I think is probably going to happen is we're going to discover um, an oxygen-rich atmosphere on an Earth-like planet orbiting another sun before we find life that's closer by, i.e. on Mars, because it's a more conspicuous signature. And life on Mars is necessarily going to have to be kind of hidden um, and, and, and secreted away, so it's going to be difficult to spot. And thoughts on intelligent alien life? Do you think that's likely? It's one of the things... I, I, I would put my money on no. But it's one of those things that... It's almost like, like Pascal's wager. I'd, I'd like to be proven wrong. So I, I suspect not. And I suspect that the reason the galaxy seems so very quiet and we haven't seen you know, great big monoliths on the moon or received um, emails sent to us from, from radio signals from other stars is because the aliens aren't there. And all these other kind of theories about the, you know, zoo hypothesis, the aliens are there, they're trying to protect us, and there's a prime directive, and aliens can't make contact with us until we've demonstrated we're mature species. I mean, it's, it's the stuff of sci-fi, and it's possible. 
But for me, the much more rational and simple explanation is just that they're not there. Yeah, but that's the boring, explanation. The boring are you, explanation. Are you a bit of a sci-fi fan? Do you, do you understand why people get so excited by the idea of alien life elsewhere? Oh, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm a massive sci-fi fan as well. I'd love for, the, for Ian Banks' culture to be out there. I'd love for them to make contact. Um, but I think on one hand, it's, it's not being too bipolar, I don't think, to have that kind of hope in your mind and enjoy reading those kind of stories. But in the back of your head, also knowing, well, it's probably not going to happen. Thank you for downloading this ThinkCon 2012 ThinkCast. Till next time.